You can turn your Bibles to Luke 10, verse 25. We'll be reading the parable of the Good Samaritan. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. I want you to imagine that I go and I talk to each one of your neighbors. And I have a simple question of what is the first word that comes to mind when you think of him or her or that family? And then we start a conversation from there. And I, I know it's a little bit of a rhetorical question, but as they think of me, me and my roommates, me and my family, would they have good things to say? Would they have honest but negative things to say? Maybe they would just say, who? Like, who? I mean, I know they drive this kind of car and they pull in that garage, but I, I don't have anything good or bad to say about my neighbor because I honestly don't even know them. Well, Luke chapter 10 is one of the most like, famous and kind of beloved stories in the Bible. Even non-believers know the term Good Samaritan as in, a good Samaritan stopped and helped me change my flat tire in the middle of the rainstorm. And we've kind of used it as a placeholder or a synonym just for someone who kind of helps a random stranger with some tangible need. And I want to go through this story with you, even though it's familiar this morning, maybe point out some things that you already know, but are important for us to hear from Jesus again this morning, and then kind of dig into this of like for, for vision, for our own neighboring and hospitality sake, how does the Lord want us to be living all the time, but as a special emphasis this fall, as we continue to plant a church here downtown and have groups that meet all over the city and you live all over the city, how does God want us to live, okay? So starting off, you'll notice that the, the story says, kind of as, as a way of background, that a lawyer comes to Jesus and poses a question to him. Now, we think lawyer, you know, legal expert, right? They're over in the courts or they're settling your will and legal documentation. But in Jesus' day, a lawyer, the law that they specialized in was the law of Moses or the Torah. So think of this lawyer not as a legal expert, but as a religious expert, okay? So he's like the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. A lawyer was in that group of people. And he comes to Jesus and says, how do I inherit eternal life? And it's interesting that he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And uh, you notice a little clue there in verse 25, because it says, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test and that word test is the idea of, I want to trap you. I want to get you to say something incriminating. So he thinks he's going to get Jesus to say something, well, here's what you do to inherit eternal life, that's going to incense other religious leaders or the common people, and somehow he can turn some of the Jewish population against Jesus. So he's trying to trap him, and Jesus just turns it right back to him. He's like, well, 
you're the teacher of the law. You're the expert in the Torah. So he says, how do you, how do you read it? In other words, what's your understanding of what the Old Testament says? And the lawyer says, well, you love the Lord your God, that is Yahweh, you love with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself. And it's actually, if you think about it, it's an incredibly astute answer. He's saying the right thing. And what he's doing is he's putting together like the Shema, which is the most famous words in the Old Testament that the Jews would recite multiple times a day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he's putting together Deuteronomy 6 with Leviticus 19.18, which says the whole law is basically summarized in this, that you love your neighbor as you already love yourself. And what's interesting is, is he's putting together like the first four of the Ten Commandments with the last six, with a focus on loving God and then a focus on loving neighbor. Jesus affirms him. You notice that? He doesn't say, no, 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 you're wrong. It was a trick question. You can't, you can't do anything to inherit eternal life. Jesus encourages him. He's like, you're, you're right. So he's like, so just, just go and do that and you'll live. And I want to pause there for a second because if Jesus is saying, this is where life is found, Love God, love your neighbor. It's pretty important not just gloss over that. It'd be like if someone came to you and said, hey, I've been tracking down the most valuable lost treasure that we know about. You know, it's been gone for, for centuries, for generations. Um, but, but I know that you're an expert in like where these things are and you've done your own research. And so like, where do you think I could find this thing? And if I said like, well, what do you think? You've studied it. What's your interpretation? And if you were to say, well, I think I just go here to this place and I just look here. And I'm like, exactly. Well, that's pretty meaningful then. I'm like, oh, wait, I can, I can find this like multi-billion dollar treasure just by that and that? Exactly. So this is a big deal. But notice verse 29. He desired to justify himself. So we're introduced to his second motive. The idea of justifying himself, he's now going to ask another question. And what he's trying to do here is like, well, is, is there a loophole? Like, sure, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. But he wants to justify himself. He wants to absolve himself of responsibility. He wants to limit his obligation. And so he asks this follow-up question, and who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And uh, as Jesus so often did, you get a straight question And instead of giving a straight answer, Jesus tells a story. Beginning of verse 30. And it kind of starts out like a certain man is on a journey. And the idea is it it could have been anyone. It could have been you. It could have been me. It could have been the attorney, the lawyer of the the, the Torah. And he's meant to hear this story as like, okay, this, this is Mr. Anybody. And Jesus goes on to tell a story of like a certain man is on his way from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he gets jumped by thieves, and he gets beat to a pulp and left for dead. And just a little background there, uh, Jericho literally is like 3,000 to 3,500 feet lower than Jerusalem, which is on a hilltop, you know, Temple Mount. So people would often go back and forth between these two towns that were just a number of miles apart. And there was so much vandalism and assault happening on this road that wound its way through rocky, barren, cliff-like areas that it became known as the Way of Blood or the Paths of Blood. So many commentators will say, maybe this isn't even a parable. Maybe Jesus is just telling a real story. Maybe this actually happened to someone. Okay, so you have this guy laying in the road. Now, Jesus is going to introduce us to this cast of characters now. And he's going to say, now, a priest happened to come along. And this is the upper class, the priests that served at the temple for these two-week stints. Many of them lived outside of Jerusalem. So they would come to Jerusalem. They would do their two-week stint. And then they would return home with their pay, which would either be literal cash or, very often, an animal or some kind of sacrifice that they're taking home as food for their families to live off of for the next period of time. 
Okay, so they didn't have, obviously, bank accounts. There's no direct deposit going in. They're traveling with something that's very valuable to them and very valuable to support their families. So this priest goes by, this upper class. He sees the man. He sees his condition. And it's like he literally crosses over and is like, I have nothing to do with that. I didn't see that. And absolves himself of responsibility. And then a Levite comes along in Jesus' story. And a Levite is like the middle class of the Jewish structure. Not, not as high as the priest, but certainly above the commoner. And the Levites would help with the sacrifices at the temple. And he's returning home with his pay. And similar thing. He sees the person, he sees the need, and he crosses over and passes by. And uh, many commentators have, have noted here that Jesus is kind of setting it up where the lawyer is going to be like, oh, okay, I see where this is going. The upper class guy passes by. The middle class guy passes by. Jesus is the, you know, he, he loves the common man. So now he's going to introduce us to this common Jew who's going to come along and do something to help. And it's like, it, it's worse than that. Because now Jesus introduces us to a character that we don't expect in the story, and that is a Samaritan. And if you, you know the Samaritans, I'll tell you a little bit about them in just a moment. But it is more likely that a Samaritan would see a very wounded Jew in the middle of nowhere and just finish the job than help him. So Samaritans, who, who is this third character that Jesus introduces us to? If you go way back in Israel's history, and this is like Second Kings, Second Chronicles kind of territory, uh, geek out over it, read it later. It's great stuff. But there's essentially a civil war, and the 12 tribes of Israel become the 10 northern tribes of Israel and the two southern tribes of Judah. And in the 700s BC, the Assyrians come and they attack the northern tribes, and the northern tribes fall, and they are deported, many of them, to Assyria. But these kings in those ancient days would realize, like, if we deport everyone and literally leave these crops, these towns barren, then they get overrun by weeds and they run down and they're no longer any profit to our empire. So they would, they would deport most of the people to a foreign land, Assyria. They would leave a few of the people who seemed like no threat, and they would send a bunch of their own people there to intermarry, to water down their religious practices, their political practices. So they're, again, they're no threat because they're intermarrying. And you can read this story in 2 Kings 17 that the, the leader of Assyria is sending all these foreigners into the northern tribes where the region of Samaria was, and they're intermarrying. And they're no longer like worshiping Yahweh, the way the Jews are, they're no longer going to a temple in Jerusalem. They actually set up their own place of worship. And so the Jews and the Samaritans, by the time of Jesus, 700 years later, they absolutely despise each other. Because the Jews are looking at the Samaritans and saying, you are, you are heretics and half-breeds. We are pure. You know, we, we would rather die than intermarry with foreign people who serve pagan gods, but not you. And so they look down their noses at the Samaritans. They despise the Samaritans. And the Samaritans are sitting back there like, okay, we know you hate us, but we hate you too. Um, and we'll just get our own place of worship. And we just think you're a bunch of self-righteous racists. So there you go. Nevertheless, I want you to look at this progression in this story. This, this heretic, this half-breed comes along, sees the Jewish man lying in the road, and there's this progression. The Samaritan man sees the wounded man. The Samaritan man feels compassion in his heart. And it's actually, it's a fascinating Greek word of like stuff's going on in here when you feel that feeling that you feel. That's kind of like, I feel sick over what I see, the, the desperation, the needs. And I'm like, something's moving in here to do something about that. So he has compassion. Instead of crossing over, it says he goes to him and he helps him. You know, the wine being something with like alcohol in it could sterilize wounds and the oil could kind of soothe and comfort those wounds. You see, the Samaritan takes a risk to help the man even more. It says he puts him on his own animal and he finishes this journey 
and he rolls in at this inn, and a commentator has noticed that uh, this, is, this is kind of parallel to like an Indian, a Native American way back in the day rolling into Dodge City with a scalped cowboy on the back of his horse and being like, I'm, I'm going to take care of him. And I promise I didn't do this. I, I found him laying in the road. Everybody would be like, yeah, right. We know how much you hate each other. Okay, so he's taking a huge risk of getting jumped by the same bandits that jumped him, of him getting robbed, of him being misunderstood. He bears the cost of helping him, says two days wages. So, you know, Denver right now, what is it, $17 an hour minimum wage? So you, you think of, that's a substantial sum of money. It's not like, hey, here's a dollar to help you with whatever, I'm on my way. We're talking about like hundreds of dollars even at minimum wage today. And then he commits to bear an additional open-ended burden. Like, you take care of him, I will come back, and whatever he owes, I will pay. And I want you to notice at the end of this parable then, Jesus flips the lawyer's question on its head because he's like, you want to know who is my neighbor? Who am I responsible for? And Jesus flips it and says, my question to you, lawyer, is which of these three do you think was a neighbor to him? And this is kind of a funny thing in the story. Notice the lawyer can't even say. He can't even say, well, uh, the Samaritan. Uh, the Samaritan. Samaritan. They don't have, the, like, I'm sorry, could you speak up a little bit? He's just like, well, it's the one who showed mercy. He couldn't bring himself to say, my enemy is the one who was the neighbor. Just the one who showed mercy. And Jesus concludes, you go and do likewise. And the implication is you go and do what your hated enemy did and that's how you inherit eternal life. And if you're thinking here, you might be like, whoa, did, did Jesus just preach salvation by works? Like, be a good neighbor and you get eternal life? That doesn't seem to square with the rest of Scripture. And I think, no, I think what Jesus is doing is using kind of a rhetorical device to get the man thinking, to get him out of his boxes and categories and misunderstandings of people and his obligation to them, his neighbors. Because he said, like, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus could be like, seriously, man, like, do you, do you really not understand how far you fall short of what God requires of you in the Torah? Do you really not understand the grace of God that you think you can do something to inherit eternal life? So Jesus is kind of like this. Okay, fine. You, you want to earn your salvation then all you have to do is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself and don't fail at either of those two things. And it'll be fine. And what every one of us should do is like, well, okay, th that's all I have to do, but I can't do that. I don't love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength all the time. I love other things. I love me. I love my priorities, my schedule, my resources. Certainly don't love my neighbor as I love myself all the time. So Jesus' rhetorical device is meant to drive this man to the end of himself to say, well, great, that's all I have to do, but I can't do that, and neither can anyone else. It's meant, to, it's meant to humble him into saying, okay, what's the catch, teacher, because we can't do that. So how does anyone inherit eternal life? And then he could say, trust the one who did this for you. Just repent, turn from your sin, trust the one who did this for you. What about you? As you now process this story, and that's what we're going to do, are you living like the Samaritan did? Or are you living more like the priest and the Levite? And I'm not talking about their net worth. I'm talking about this, this whole chain of events that the one did for his enemy and the others refused to do. So question, are you living like the Samaritan did? And I want to process this with these four questions, okay? Why is it hard to be a neighbor? Again, don't, don't worry, worry less about who's your neighbor first. Why is it hard to be a neighbor? Number two, what does it mean to be a neighbor? Number three, who is my neighbor? And number four, how do you start? So I said, number one, why, why is it hard to be a neighbor? And we go back to the story. Why was it hard for the priest and the Levite to be decent neighbors. 
I, I think they were scared, right? And they had reasonable fears. It wasn't like, oh, you're crazy. Nothing's going to happen. Well, obviously something just happened. And they're afraid, like, if I stop and help this one, again, what if, what if they're hiding and they're watching him and now I'm associated with him or now I'm just vulnerable because I'm not paying attention to what's going on around me and they jump me and they take not only what's mine, but now I can't go back and feed my family for the next month and th th there's a big risk involved and it feels reckless, right? And like, don't you love how our, our nature is this way where instead of just being like, I'm a coward, I'm whatever, I'm proud, we're like, we, we spin it. We justify the way the lawyer did. Like, it would be reckless to help this person. Like, you know, because otherwise I would. And besides, you know, good people don't touch bad things, like blood. Like, if, if, if he's alive and I touch the blood, then I'm defiled. And I'm a holy man of God, so I'm not into that. And if he's dead, that's worse, because then I touch the dead thing and I'm totally, really unclean. And he's probably putting as spiritual a sounding spin on it in his own head. But my question for each of you, and you could jot something down, why you, why me? What are your barriers to being a good neighbor? Fear may be one. I mean, like genuine fear. I'm not making fun of you. I'm not saying that's not real. You, you may say, like, I have a genuine fear that something bad could happen to me, or if I take this risk... Like, where could that lead? I mean, my schedule could spiral out of control on me if I stop and talk to this person. So there might be just like a low-grade fear and anxiety. But isn't it true that for many of us, the barrier is simply busyness? I'm, just, I'm busy. I don't have time for someone, like a neighbor, to disrupt my plans. I'm running from one thing to the next thing to the next thing. I don't have margin in my schedule. And I think like there's, there's no more spiritual thing than just we are busy people, busy with all kinds of things, which is connected to another barrier, which is simply selfishness, which is like, it's my time. I want to use my time how I want to use my time. It's, it's my money. I worked hard for my money. And so did you. And why would I spend my money on this person, this neighbor? And they've never done anything nice for me. It's my research, my, my gifts, my friendships. I choose those. Or how about this? Maybe a barrier for you is just like a, not a hypocritical attitude, but a hypercritical attitude. Like you can always find fault in other people. You can always find a reason why they are not worthy of your care. Like, do you ever find yourself with this kind of attitude toward, like, the homeless or the marginalized, where you're like, well, I don't really know how they got there. They probably, you know, they probably disobeyed their parents and started doing drugs. And, like, and you tell a story that you don't even know that absolves you of responsibility to help someone that you don't even know their story because you're hypercritical. Um, how about disgust? I've seen this where with one of our outreaches here, some folks from another church were like, oh, we want to we help the poor too. So we're going to come and we're going to help the poor and put some stuff on social media about helping the poor. And I like literally saw these people's faces as they walked in and suddenly like the homeless was no longer a category to help. They were real people that were dirty and smelly. And they literally like looked at, e looked at each other glanced around the room, and it was like, it was disgust on their faces. And they turned around and walked out. I don't know if that resonates with anybody, but you can see certain people with certain needs, and you're like, well, they're not really my neighbor because their dress, their appearance, their smell, their associations disgust me. It's a real barrier. How about just apathy? If we're honest, just like, eh. It's not like I'm being tremendously selfish. I just don't care that much. I, I, I would say I, I do not have the heart of Jesus, but I, but I also don't care about that either. And let me say, I think it was like Spurgeon or somebody that said something like this, that if any reason justifies you not loving your neighbor, 
you will always find a reason. If, if any reason is sufficient to be like, I see the need, but I don't care and I'm not going to help you, then you'll always find a reason to justify and you'll put the best possible spin on it so in your mind you're still like a really awesome, loving, caring person, but you're not because we're falling short of the basic command to love neighbor as self. We're failing to do what Paul wrote in Philippians 2 where he says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. In other words, it's not wrong for the priest and the Levite to say, well, I've only got so much, and I got this little journey back here to my home and to my family, and I do need to meet their needs. It's not wrong to plan ahead and save up and buy food for your family and put a roof over your family's head. But the idea is don't just look at your own interests also look at the interests of others and seek to love others the way that you love you and you want to be treated. And I want us to think about the gospel for just a moment. God could have used any and every excuse that we use for not helping people. He could have used them times whatever. Like planet Earth is a little out of my way. I'm kind of a big deal. Like forever, infinitely, eternally, I've been God. So becoming human to help them that's a pretty big condescension. These people got themselves in their own mess. And by the way, you don't think that an all-knowing, all-wise God knows exactly what you've done to put yourself in the mess you're in. But he doesn't sit back and be like, well, if someone had done that to you, then I would help you. But because you've kind of contributed to your own problems, I'm not available. No, he's just like, of, of course. You, you've been hurt by others. You've been afflicted by others but you've also harmed yourself, and so have I. But Jesus doesn't use that excuse. He doesn't say like, oh, I've got other things to do. I've got a universe to run. I don't have time for the one. He could have said sinners disgust me with their bad choice. I'm, I'm holy. Talk about someone that can't touch that kind of stuff. I can't touch that kind of stuff. He could have said like death. Like that's, that's way too costly. Like I'm immortal invisible death to help them. But do you know why we're saved? Is because there was no distance too far for Jesus to travel to love you. There was no risk too great to scare him off. There was no cost or price attached to helping you and me. Philippians 2 that I just read, let each of you look not only on your own interests, but also on the interests of others. If you know the text, it goes on to tell this story that, that God literally humbled himself and took on the form of a servant and became obedient to the point of death on a cross. So Jesus, the gospel, the good news that we believe that delivers us from death to life and bondage into freedom is this story of how Jesus is the true good Samaritan. Like he's the half-breed. Do you know how many times the religious people came to him and they were like, at least, we know who our, at least we know who our father is. Like literally saying, Jesus, you're, you're a bastard. You have, you have no idea who your father is. Of course, his father was God eternally. But they're casting this dispersion on him. Like you're, you're not a full-blooded Jew like us. And you've got issues. And you're from Nazareth. And... And, and, and. But Jesus comes to us, as it were, wallowing in our own blood and doesn't just risk his life, but lays down his life to restore our health. So my, my question is, does not that gospel change you? I don't mean just, it's important to look at the example of Jesus and say, I want to be like that. That's, that's what you do with a rabbi. You say, as you are mentoring me, as I'm an apprentice to your care, I want to walk in your steps. I want to do the things I see you doing. But it's not just an example. It is like his love, his compassion, the distance he went, the sacrifices he paid are, are supposed to transform our hearts where it's like that motivates me. That changes and transforms me to do what he did. So... Will you with me repent of your excuses, rejoice in what Jesus has done to be your neighbor, and trust God to give you everything you need to go and be a good neighbor? Okay, that's, 
the first thing here. Secondly, what does it mean to be a neighbor? And straight from the story, four things here. Number one, it means seeing. Like looking intentionally, seeing. And is it possible you, you walk by the same things or you drive by the same things so often you don't see what you used to see? Does anybody have that experience? Like you, the, the stuff that's on your daily commute, you just don't see it the same way anymore? Because it's like, I see that all the time. And then something changed, like one thing on that whole 10-mile drive changes and you're like, whoa, like something changed. But that's the one thing you see. Like we've, we've got to get out of this just human trap that we're in of just not even seeing the people around us and the needs that are reflected in their lives, which are then opportunities for the love of Christ to be shined through you and through me. We've got to see. Being a good neighbor, number two, means feeling. Like when is the last time like your heart actually broke for something that you saw? And it could be a physical need. It could be like a health and medical thing. And that's an easy way to introduce yourself to a neighbor and say, I see you have this physical thing. Like, let me help you. You need a ride here or there or this thing. Um, But you may see and feel a relational thing like a divorce or your kids are off to college and you're an empty nester now. How, How are you doing with that? That's a struggle, right, as a parent? I mean, there are going to be all kinds of things that we feel. I love this quote by one commentator where he says, it is not uncommon to love the idea that you love people and are their benefactor rather than to actually love people themselves. Like, do you catch that? Like, we love to think we're the kind of people that love people. And we're in love with the idea that, like, yeah, we're, we're given all kinds of things. I, I remember one time a deacon from another church was looking at some of the things that we were just starting to do here downtown earlier this year. And she was like, how do you guys do it? Like, our whole church, like, all we do is, like, no one helps anyone. They just give money. And she was like, and we give a lot of money to all kinds of causes all over the city, but no one will help. And she, she's kind of expressing this idea of like, we, we love to think that we love people and are their benefactor, but do we actually love people themselves? Because there is a world of difference between those two things. Being a good neighbor means seeing, means feeling. Number three means risking. You're gonna risk disruptions to your schedule You're going to risk disruptions to what you were planning to do with that little bit of money. You're going to risk being associated, as Jesus was, with the wrong kind of people. There's, There's all kinds of risks in loving your neighbor. But finally, being a neighbor means seeing, feeling, risking, sacrificing. And when you, when you cap it at this tiny, like, yeah, here's a dollar, um, hope you use it wisely. I mean, are you really being a neighbor at all? There's no real cost there to you. That is, that is not loving your neighbor as you love yourself. That is not treating them the way you would want to be treated. Um, can I share this? When I was younger, and I was thinking about risks and sacrifices for people because I do love people and I love the idea of loving people (laughs) honestly Um, when I was younger and I had very little money it was it was a big sacrifice to give money it was a very small sacrifice to give my time because I had lots and lots of time I just didn't have any money like today you know 40 years later it's honestly easier a lot of the time just to give money and not time because I have more money than time. But my question is, what's God calling you to sacrifice? And like, unfortunately, a lot of those things are tied together. Like your time, your money, your resources, your, your abilities, your, 
mental energy to help someone think through a problem in their life and to love them well is tied together. What's God calling you to sacrifice? That's what it means to be a neighbor, to see, to feel with them. Empathy is literally feeling with someone. Then risking and sacrificing. Okay. Thirdly, um, just two more practical points. Third question was, who is your neighbor? Okay. And my, my, one of my questions is just like, who is God already bringing to mind as we talk about this? Like, is there a name? Is there a face? Like, this person is my next door neighbor. This person sits in the cubicle, one cubicle over from me or across the aisle, or I bump into this person at the gym often or wherever. Um, when Jesus said, love your neighbors, here's, here's, a, here's a concept for you. What if you meant your actual neighbors? Like, we, we, do, this, we do this vague thing, like, Oh, yeah, I love, love my neighbors as myself. What if you met your actual neighbors? Uh, we've done this before where it's like um, you think about your relational neighbors, like people that are related to you by blood. You think about your geographic neighbors, which I'm going to help you do in just a moment. Like who are people that just literally geographically by God's sovereign providence just happen to live to the right and left of me and across the alley and across the street? Because those are neighbors. You have social neighbors, you have recreational neighbors, you have vocational neighbors, people that you work with, people that you play with, okay? Um, there's nothing wrong with helping strangers halfway around the world, okay? Ashish was just here talking about the needs in India. We support them, we pray for them. They get finances to go do wonderful things. But do you think your obligation to love your neighbors yourself is fulfilled by writing a small check and saying like, eh, five or 50 or 500 bucks to the thing in India. I, I love the magic of social media and GoFundMe to know what's going on halfway around the world, but we are not called to do that to the exclusion of helping our actual neighbors. John Mark Homer points out how this story of the Good Samaritan both universalizes and particularizes the concept of neighbor. So universalizes means it could be anyone. That's part of the story. It's like a certain man was going down this way and he got beat up. And then another certain man that's the enemy happened to come across this category, enemy. And th there's this universal thing happening where it, it could be anyone that is your neighbor by the providence of God in your neighborhood, in the HOA, in the uh, professional group that you're a part of, at your workplace, at the gym, at the coffee shop. And it's just like the universal. It could be someone from another political party, another religion, a competitor's business, a rival school. All of them could be your neighbor. But Comer says Jesus particularizes it too. Because it's like, it's, it's not just anyone. It's that guy in the road. It's the, the person that Jesus literally puts in your path and says, right now in this moment, your stories are going to intersect. So stop loving people as a concept, as an abstract, love actual people. Now, how do you start? Last thing. Um, Jay Pathak and Dave Runyon wrote this very helpful, very practical book called The Art of Neighboring. And um, like one of their theses is like, what if God gave you your actual neighbors for a reason? That the, the God who plans like all times and places and like where is that person going to be born and where do they end up living? Like what if your neighbors are next to you for a reason? What if your coworkers are next to you for a reason? So at the conclusion of this, I want each of you or each family unit to grab one of these little magnets that you can put on your refrigerator. If yours is magnetic, ours is not. I don't know why they do that. It looks like metal, but it's not actually metal, you know. But find somewhere to put this. And it says, who is my neighbor? And it's literally like, you are here. So who's to the right and left of you? Who's across the alley behind you? And you'll see this is a three-by-three three grid, and so it's assumed that many of you have eight neighbors 
we, we lucked out or, or we, we came in bad because we live across from a park and so we, don't, we, we can take out this entire row. So we only have five neighbors instead of most of you have eight. But fill in what you can. And where, where you start is literally like, this is their first names. And then a kind of B category is, what's one thing I know about Dave that I could not have known just by looking at Dave. Like, it's not, he drives a gold Honda Accord, and I see him when he pulls in his garage, and I don't talk to him because I put my garage door down too. But it's like, what's something you could only know by talking to Dave? Like, he has a daughter at Arizona State. Um, He is an electrical engineer. He likes vegan burgers. I mean, whatever, Okay. But a factoid, something interesting about them that you could only discern from a conversation. And then a C level is, what's something going on in Dave's heart? Like anything. What, what motivates Dave? What is he broken up over? What frustrates him? Something, something heart level. Okay. And what's interesting is, as Pathak and Runyon have done all this research for this book, those three categories, they'll say of, of everyone that they interviewed, like huge pool of people, about 10% of Christians in America can answer number one. These are the first names of my eight closest neighbors, about 10%. Less than 3% know one additional fact about those eight people that they couldn't know just like, well, they live in a brick, brick house. Like, yay, good for you. Like, that was obvious. Have you ever talked to them? No. 3%. Less than 1% know something deep about their heart, about what motivates them, about what they care for, about what they worship and serve. I titled this message Extraordinary Hospitality, but extras in parentheses. Okay, so is it extraordinary or is it just ordinary by doing a few extra things? Uh, Rosaria Butterfield, many of you have read her book on hospitality. She just calls it radically ordinary hospitality. In other words, you don't have to change your whole life. You don't have to make your entire life. Like now it revolves around being this really amazing, hospitable person. It's like just start living with a degree of intentionality towards your actual neighbors. And for her, it's like getting up really early every morning and baking a ton of bread. That will never be my thing. That may never be your thing. But figure out what your thing is. Like we do often just cook or grill a bunch of extra food. And then Marty, my wife, is way better at this. And those of you who know her, like know that that's true. Those of you who know me know that that's true. She's just way better at just being like, hey, the so-and-sos are joining us for dinner tonight. Or people just show up. And it's like, oh, I meant to tell you that I invited the singles group over for dinner tonight. You know, and there they are. So, but... Again, not just thinking on your own things, but adding a layer of like, I can cook a little bit more. I can set another place at the table. Two things to do this, and then I'm done. If you want to have an impact on your neighbors, if you want to love your neighbors, if you want to be the kind of neighbor that when you move out of the neighborhood, they actually feel a void, not like, oh, the hands moved. So hope the new neighbors are better than them, you know. Number one, you have to have regular interaction with your neighbors. Number two, you have to be different to make a difference. And both of those things are important. It's like, I'm thinking about like salt and light as Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you are salt, you are light, which means you are interacting on a molecular level with the stuff around you, the people around you, but you gotta be different to make a difference. So I want every single one of you to prayerfully consider what are even some, some relatively ordinary changes I could make to my daily, weekly, monthly, seasonal routines to be a good neighbor, like in biblical terms of being a good neighbor, to see people, to feel with them, to risk and to sacrifice to meet their needs. I'll give you a few practical things. Number one, eat with non-Christians. Eat with non-Christians. Um, that'd, that'd be my one, two, and three. Eat with non-Christians. As in, have them in your home. Or if you're a roommate, have them in your area. 
or if you're living in your parents' basement, um, don't have them to the basement, but maybe ask your parents if you can have the dining room table one night a month, okay? Make this work to eat with people. And you can plan around like, hey, we're going like, to be moving into a new neighborhood in a, in a couple months. So it's like we host the block party and like we want to get to know you. It's not like we're here to fix everything. It's like we, we just want to get to know our neighbors right out of the gate. So block party, holiday party, Taco Tuesday, the Broncos game is on. And we had a bunch of friends over for a potluck. And we were hanging out together and eating together and breaking bread together. And there's something visceral that happens. You know this if you've done this. Of instead of just passing by and being like, hey, bye, my garage door is going down and yours is too. But to say, come into my home and let me spread a table for you. And let's talk. That food and drink have a way of, like, bringing down barriers, okay? Um, walk, don't drive. So you got to drive some places, that's fine. But just, just make it a habit of, like, you know, when I'm here at the office, I'll often walk over to Central Market or walk to a restaurant or walk to a coffee shop that's a little bit further away and just see, like, oh, I start seeing some of the same people over and over again by walking, and it's just, like, you're slowing down. You're putting yourself in a position where you don't have, like, walls of glass that, Make it like, so I can listen to my thing and do my thing and I don't have to interact with people around me except, you know, when they cut me off and then I can interact with this bad boy right here, you know, and then that's, that's it. No, like walk, don't drive. Be a regular. So like go to some of the same restaurants, coffee shops, the same line in the grocery store to see the same person who's checking your groceries for you. Multiply that out of just like, hey, how are you doing? And you start to see some of the same people, whether that's a server at a restaurant or barista, et cetera. Um, hobby with non-Christians, so like hiking, climbing, photography, antiquing, knitting. I mean, I don't care what your thing is, but use that as a means of introducing yourself to non-Christians. Talk to your coworkers. And I mean, like that, that lunchtime or having them over on the weekend or something like that, where you're like, ooh, we don't do that. We already spend enough time together, and I don't actually like them, well, break that down and spend time with them and talk to them like they're human. They're not just a cog in your corporate wheel thing, okay? Um, volunteer with nonprofits and participate in city events. So, you know, Rhino right here has all these art walks and you can come to art walks on first Fridays and you can do something like that or the Oktoberfest or... Um, what is it here? The, the ballpark collective that we're a part of with our church and our asterisk business is like we start seeing some of the same business owners over and over and over again and realizing like we share similar concerns about some of the bad stuff going on in the neighborhood. And they start to see like, oh, there's Christians, but they care about what's going on in the neighborhood with restaurants and an architecture firm and this brokerage that's over here. So do stuff like that. Work in public places. You know, sometimes like take, take a book, take your laptop, whatever, and instead of just being holed up at home, which we got in the habit of doing during COVID, but like try to be in a public place. Find, find a reason to be out. Um, I love this one. Find a reason to be in your front yard. Okay? Like Marty knows this. We, we planted a garden, but it's in our front yard. And as I'm just out nightly watering or pulling weeds or whatever, like the number of people who are walking by, walking a dog, taking a child on a walk, a bike ride, like people always, like nightly, stop by and want to talk about the garden. And they're starting the conversation. So I'm just like, it's super easy because I'm an introvert, but they're starting the conversation. So I'm not like, hey, as you're running by on the other side, okay, never mind, you're gone. But they'll come over and be like, what, what variety of tomatoes are these? And why do you think that they just suddenly started to fruit out? Like, in late September, I'm like, I don't know. What do you think? You know, and you're off and running with a conversation. So hang out in your front yard, not just like areas of your home and your yard that are invisible to everyone else. Okay. That's just a handful of things. And, and like I said, you got to be different to make a difference then. So as you're interacting with people, like pray, God, I want to be like Jesus. Make my heart like Jesus so that even in casual time where I'm not awkwardly turning every single conversation to like, um, I mean, speaking of 
the Broncos and things that aren't going well right out of the gate that we thought would be better. Uh, how, how's your life doing without Jesus? You know, it's like um, there, there are better ways sometimes. So I'm not talking about forcing artificial conversations. I'm just saying, like, you're so different. You're so caring that people see that. And they're like, why are you so hopeful with everything going on in culture right now? What, what do you have that I don't have? And the Bible assumes that you're living in such a way that people ask you questions about your hope, your kindness, your compassion, your care. Um, as I said, the, the, this, this is extraordinary, but it's ordinary at the same time. I was thinking of this, um, last night I was writing this down. I've, I've lived basically 12 different places for longer than like a month. I don't mind like counting like going away to camp and working at camp for a summer, but lived in like 12 different houses or apartments. As I'm thinking through all my experiences with my neighbors, I don't have a single heartwarming story to tell you about how someone was a good neighbor to me. Not one. Not, not someone being like, hey, I see that you had knee surgery or I see that you're going through something, you know, with your kids, or so, like something obvious. And then just saying like, I just wanna let you know I care. Like here, here's a way I can help. Or can I offer rides for this for a little while while you get back on your feet? And so I, I say it's not really extraordinary just to do ordinary things from a heart of love and them be like, no one does that anymore. And if you have a neighbor that does that, that's great. but. People don't do ordinary kindness, especially if there's a risk, especially if there's a cost. And we have opportunities to do that. So what if, and I mean every single one of us was like, Lord, will you use me that way? And if you're a couple, like you can talk about extra ways to do it together. If you're a family, if you've got roommates, there are extra ways to do it together. But what if every single person simply prayed, like, Jesus, give me your eyes to see as you see. Give me your heart to feel what you feel. Give me your wisdom. Give me your compassion. Give me your humility, your patience with people, your kindness, your love, and fill me up with your resources because I'm going to need it. Okay. So, will you love your neighbor by loving your actual neighbors?